Episode 61 of the Cult of Matt and Mark, Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. Make sure to visit our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. Any show news? <laughs> show news. Um, no. Just a, a surprisingly sober viewing of The Wall this week. No uh, inebriance to speak of. Oh, I don't think this movie needs any sort of uh, psychedelics in any way, shape, or form. I can understand if you're just watching The Laser Show, which was, yeah. which was pretty good. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Uh, no, I didn't go see The Laser Show, but I think it still exists. Um, does it? We didn't check up on that. We were going no, to follow I didn't up either. to I think, see I think I briefly did, and I think it does, but uh, I didn't actually oh. go see it. I mean, The Wall, the album itself, came out quite a bit before this film. 79, I believe. They don't just play the album. There's original music made for this. And then there's some songs left film. out as well. Yeah. They so. sort of created a narrative and f- filled in the, the gaps a little bit. But this, mu- yeah. this uh, movie has very little dialogue. It's mostly told through the music. It's a musical, really. And see... See, there are some musicals that you like. Well, you, don't be too judgmental. Let, let's let's no, let's 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 recategorize exactly what the wall is. I would say the wall is a rock opera, technically not a musical. Musicals, rock. Well, I thought they were called rock, rock, rockeras, rockeras. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's terrible. Well, okay. So here's my beef. Uh, if the the musical thing to me is always, I want to say. Wizard of Oz, like so, which isn't a bad movie, and I guess is a watchable musical. Uh, it's a classic, of course, but uh, it's where there's uh, talking, and then all of a sudden a breakout in the song with choreography. To me, that's a classic musical, and I always find those really annoying because it just tears down any kind of reality that's built up with some conversation and uh typical movie and then all of a sudden there's this song going on i'm like what the fuck so yeah, there is classically there's always choreography accompany the song in this movie he does actually use choreography in one song uh, a few like uh another brick in the wall part two and, and after after this big speech i don't remember all the, i didn't really line up all the uh, song names i'm not uh, really super familiar okay. with the album the wall yeah but it does exist in this film if you want to call it a rock opera, that's fine. But it still seems like it should probably stay under the, like, sort of a super phylum of musical. Well, like, there's Tommy by The Who, which is a rock opera, another double album from the 70s. And that was, like, I think where the term got coined, rock opera, uh, you know, with an accompanying movie and storyline and concept and all that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah. I guess we're, we're sort of playing a nomenclature game here. Yeah, it's splitting film. hairs. 
Yeah, uh, it is a little bit of split in here. So, it, it, that's fine. That's fine. If if you wanted to find it that way, I I don't really care. I'm not trying to push your buttons to say you really should go fucking pushing know, see, my buttons. Uh, more musical theater. Because yeah, I think I you'd love cats. <laughs> fucking cats. <laughs> oh God, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I wish that guy the worst. Sir anyway. Andrew Lloyd Webber to you. Are you what? All right, he's knighted. Are you? Sh- God, they'll fucking knight anybody. Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, speaking of another night, let's talk about uh, Sir Bob Geldof here in the Pink Floyd's The Wall, released in 1982. Uh, going to the plot rundown. Uh, the film is structured around Pink's reflection on his life, all of which center on the building of, quote-unquote, The Wall. The Wall is a metaphor for psychological isolation, a barrier Pink creates to distance himself from his pain. The foundations for this wall are lane in childhood with the death of pink's father leaving him to be raised by an overprotective mother and a repressive school system he seeks freedom from his world through writing and music however even after he achieves success as a rock star the wall continues to grow with pink feeling trapped by fame and wounded by his failed personal relationships lost in despair and self-loathing he attempts to isolate himself from the world entirely directed by alan parker and starring Sir Bob Geldof, music by Pink Floyd. So, uh, well, I think that pretty much uh, sums it up. So, until next time. All right, until next week. No. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I guess it's sort of. Well, that that summary really gets right at the uh, base of the uh, movie. I thought we'd be talking about the wall and what the wall is and what it means forever, but I think that just about well sums it up. Uh, I don't know. Let's talk about uh, when was your first in- introduction to the Floyd. Do you remember Mark? Big, big Floyd, Floyd fan. Well, you know, I've listened. I've listened. Not necessarily. I mean, I enjoy Floyd. I guess uh, they sure play a whole fucking lot of it on. Uh, no matter, no matter what Pandora station I'm listening to, I am always subjected to Pink Floyd. It's gotten so really? bad that I just I downvote every Pink Floyd song now because I'm just getting tired of. <laughs> what are they? Pandora what are they? must have a really lucrative or really cheap licensing deal with Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> because it seems like it's nothing but Pink Floyd in any channel. All right. It's well, really strange. Tune in to the Lisa Loeb channel and tell me what yeah. Pink Floyd uh, they're running on that one. So, Oh, really? I haven't tried the no, Lisa, I just, Lisa. I'm just ah, fuck, I'm just making shit up. I don't know. Uh, so I think uh, I've actually I've even I think I've even heard it on the uh I think uh the Henry channel, the Henry Rollins channel even has Pink Floyd what? on it. There's well, something he, about Pink Floyd that just airs everywhere on Pandora. He does nuts. hate his absentee dad. So maybe there's some <laughs> pink synergy with Mr. Rollins on that one. Oh, I don't so. think I don't think Pink Pink hates his dad. I, I no, I'm just man, I don't know. Absentee dad, dad that's not there. Raised by a single mother. Whatever. Okay, stretching there. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, let's see. Did you I watch would... the uh, Did you watch the comment theory? No, I didn't get around to the Me commentary. Neither. I did watched you watch the, the retro. making of documentary. Documentary. I watched the retro part one and two with interviews What's with Alan that? Parker and uh, Roger Waters. Oh, oh, just talking about making the wall and is the retro that. some sort of uh, television interview show? Uh, it's like a companion interview for the 1999 reissue of the DVD. So it's not. Uh, uh, I don't think it's anything ancillary. I think they made it for the DVD, but yeah, that's okay. all right. I mean, it's all right. Well, you can maybe chime in if there's any insight through there. I just watched the film. I didn't watch anything extra. Oh, that's this fine. Time around, I mean, that's kind of the best way to sort of you know take it in uh i mm-hmm. trying to you know the pink floyd has always been kind of in my life my dad was a huge fan and we had uh oh dark side of the moon laying around the house ever since i can remember 
because it was released in 1973, and I was born in 1973, so, yeah, it got a lot of... Well, it sounds just like my childhood. Oh, no, wait. My parents just listened to big band music. Big Mancini fans, your parents? Yeah, yeah, Henry Uh, Mancini and all all that ilk. So, I got into, like, I guess the heavy Floyd era was probably when everybody gets into it, their uh, college years, you know, 18 to 22, where you're really sort of dwelling on this stuff, and... uh, you know, I mean, what did you dwell on about? Just Pink Floyd? like listening to Pink Floyd, smoking weed, and listening to more Pink Floyd. Mm. Uh, actually, my favorite Pink Floyd movie, quote unquote, isn't The Wall, but Live at Pompeii, which was oh yeah, I think I think I watched that with you one time. Did you have it on a v- video cassette? I had it on a well-worn VHS tape that got passed around uh, from stoner to stoner. In uh, <laughs> Bellingham, when we were going to school there, and I think I ended up with it back finally because uh, Ben Packer had it, and uh, he was he was making heavy use of it at the time. But mm. uh, the live at Pompeii is, was made during the recording of Dark Side of the Moon and after their album Metal, which is one of my favorites, and uh, it's basically you know they're they're kind of in that prime early seventies long hair. Uh, phase psychedelic phase and they just set up all their shit in the middle of like an old excavated pompeii amphitheater you know from roman times or older and they just jam out and so they film them while they're playing there it's uh what year is this from about uh, like 71 72 Anyway, it's pretty narcissistic. <laughs> I mean, it's just like fucking overindulgent. But uh, it had some pretty groovy early 70s special effects. And uh, the version of Echoes. Oil in, colored oil in water? Or yeah. Oil in colored water. Water sort of colors and, you know, overhead projectors <laughs> and whatever the fuck that was like the stock and You trade. can do a lot with projectors. I mean, people love doing that. Like all the light projection on buildings that's become a popular uh, sort of public art form these days yeah yeah and so so, uh, mask off a projector and do crazy stuff on on buildings it's always pretty neat the 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 live songs were basically comprised of stuff from a saucer full of secrets and uh metal and probably my favorite pink floyd song they play like live it's like the 20 minute song echoes and it's on side two of metal and for whatever reason that i just love that song it's just so crazy and uh, that version of it's excellent. And just uh, a little Easter egg, if you're up for one, if you go onto YouTube and you click in 2001 uh, Echoes, um, mm-hmm. there's basically in 2001, there's that section at the end of the Kubrick classic called Jupiter and the Infinite, which is just yeah. this psychedelic spaceship ride that Dave takes into the monolith, I'm guessing. It's hard to tell. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, it's just some crazy shit. And at the end of it, he ends up in this weird white room with various aged versions of himself. So there's like the uh, star baby, which uh, and then there's the old man and the old man's just like eating dinner or something walking. Yeah, around. sort of a journey out of time. But if you play Echoes, Echo, it's about a 20 minute sequence. And so is Echoes. And if you play them together, uh, I think the most famous coincidence of pink floyd is uh, dark side of the moon and um wizard of oz wizard of oz which, which that's not I, really 
intentional, right? No, not really, because it ends like at the Munchkin Land, because the movie's hour and a half, and this album's like only 50 minutes, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? it stops at a weird point. To, well, I guess you could just play it twice. That'd be perfect. That'd put you like uh, just about the right time span. Uh, I guess, but that I didn't. That's it didn't work maybe out. You should, maybe you should play it half speed. Can you do that on a record player? You probably could. <laughs> Money. You gotta put a different resistor in it's there. Yeah. A yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> but if you do uh, Jupiter and the Infinite and Metal, they sync up amazingly well, and it's a real fun They're music meant to. video. I guess it's. Uh, I guess Pink Floyd was solicited to do the soundtrack for two thousand one and turned it down, mm. which I think was one of Roger Waters' biggest regrets. So, oh, okay. yeah. But anyway, uh, check it out. It's 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 groovy watching. And uh, if you're taking advantage of uh, Washington's uh, liberalized marijuana laws, then it might uh, make a excellent companion. So I, I went down to the liquor store yesterday and they did not have any marijuana for sale. Did you freak the fuck out and knock shit over? Was, Where's my weed? Motherfucker! And then I arranged it intricately on the floor until the cops came. <laughs> I got. <laughs> it was actually a rather beautiful part of this film where he arranges all that debris. It's really pretty. Yeah, it's a, it's that's like kind of the uh, cra- that's like a crazy thing. Like any time, uh, I always think of uh, Richard Dreyfus in his living room making the making uh, Devil's Tower with garbage. You know, just mm. that sort of crazy obsessive uh, building things out of trash in your front room. You know, I don't know. It works well in this movie. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought I thought some of the designs were really neat. I wonder who actually did those arrangements. I don't know. Maybe just some art director, possibly on the film. Yeah, possibly. I'm not really sure who all that all the the credits are. Um, so I didn't know where we wanted to go with this review. I kind of uh, wanted I'm a little to confuse. I was gonna I guess I was gonna start at the wall and work back. Well, I, I here here's. I mean, oh, there's. Uh, go ahead. Do you have something to say? I got just... another question. What is up with Nigger the dog? He just keeps coming <laughs> back in this movie. Is that some famous film that there's echoes of? It's a world where. It's a World War II film called Dam Busters. Dam Busters. Yeah. Dam's sort of a wall, isn't it? Uh, ooh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Making yeah, linkages. I just blew your mind. I blew your mind. That just happened. <laughs> Anyways, it's a wall. Uh, Nigga the dog got hit by a car. It was sort of sad. Well, I don't know. Was that just put in there because it was just so fucking dated? And why would anybody name their black dog nigger? I mean, is that well, just... Well, I mean, uh, I guess Pink was... Uh, which I guess you don't find out his name until... Uh, until like uh, two thirds of the way through the film, right? Well, there's the collect call where I have a collect call to Mrs. Floyd from Mr. Floyd, yeah. and yeah. then he's called Pink or Pinkus or Pinky when he's a little boy. In those, oh, so the character's name was actually Pink Floyd. Huh? Is that referred to anything in particular? I don't know. That's pretty. Uh, I, don't, I, I think I don't know where that comes from. I didn't I read up he was on sort where it of. Came from. He was obsessed with World War II and thoughts of his father. I guess, obviously, because you see all the flashbacks where as a boy he's thinking about the war and he takes multiple visits to the war, the scene of the war. Like uh, looks like it was sort of like uh, Normandy invasion sort of. uh, I think it was like an act. It was like the act he was trying to recreate the actual battle his father died in, which was, I think, say like Anzio. I think it was an Italian uh, battlefield or something. That was before Normandy then, right? The Italian stuff? No, that was after. (sighs) There was, I, I, I forget. Yeah. I, I, I don't know my World War II history there. Uh, so, uh, but that part is autobiographical. Roger Waters. Uh, Father was killed in World War II? Yes. Yeah. Oh. So, um, the alienated rock star bit, I don't, he never trashed a hotel room. So, uh, 
that part obviously wasn't autobiographical, and he never created a, a fascist legion of skinheads. So, um, yeah, you parts. know, I wonder. I wonder about the sort of British national socialism that is so important in this film. It's sort of the transformation of Pink. I'm, I'm not. What do you think that? What do you think that really means? Is it just like sort of a a, a emergent property of creating such a wall around yourself that you sort of turn yourself into this sort of well if you want to get into it uh well i mean shit we're talking about the goddamn movie no 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 (laughs) i i I know i just i i kind of wanted to put the the our analysis in more of context because uh to me pink floyd and why it i guess took a hold of me at age 18 so easily is because it's allegory and metaphor is almost ap high school english level i mean it's it's beating you over the head with its uh you know, metaphor of the wall being, you know, uh, isolation from alienation from the world. And I don't know. But I mean, that's kind of what I, I thought. I was just a brick in the wall. <laughs> I think everybody around you is bricks in the wall, man. Um, man, it's uh, <laughs> we're just blowing in the wind, man. No, I, I think, I don't know. I don't want to ramble, but I... I I want to try to put it in a context of us being near age 40 and viewing the wall and what we're getting out of it more so than what we would get out of it like in our 20s so much, you know. Well, because... I never seriously watched the wall until this week. In fact, I don't oh, think I okay. ever really saw it except for oh. bits and pieces of it. So it's been a new experience for me. So I don't think I have any other context to put it in. So maybe you should put it in. Maybe you All should right. give us this context that you want us to, to uh, work around. Well, I just think in your early 20s, uh, I think your misanthropy is much more on a hair trigger. I think it's now, a What lot. does misanthropy mean exactly? Just uh, kind of snap judgment of humanity and, you know, how shitty people can be and uh, reasons to sort of write them off and write off personal relationships and, uh, you know, because, I don't know, you get burned by chicks. That's an easy one, you know. Well, there's a lot of anger in this film. That's for sure. Well, yeah, and the the... There's anger at, obviously, the educational system of Britain, which to me didn't really sink in as much as I think it would if I was in a British like public school system. Because I think in Britain there's a lot more sensitivity to class. I think people are much more, more class-oriented and aware of class, where here we just sort of diminish it. We don't talk about it. Like, everybody can be a rich asshole in America. You know, anybody could be a fucking Kennedy if they work hard enough and, you know, all that kind of crap that uh, we buy into here in the U.S. Well, but I, did, I just didn't see any discussion of class in this film. There was the discussion of conformity, certainly. Well, that's but, kind of part well, I of it, I guess though. I, don't see, I don't see where class... I mean, obviously, but I just don't see where this movie really deals with class much. Well, other than the fact that Pink himself is sort of in no. sort of this bubble supported by money. No, no, no. Which is I, obvious on I, its face. I, I'm building the context around the film, which is okay. sort of the the environment that Roger Waters was raised in, which is the British system. And, uh, you know, the, the class system, like, you know, if you're working class, then you're working class, and there's an acceptance of that. And uh, if you're in a posh class, then there's that's where you're going to be. And there's not a lot of, uh, I guess, 
rising up through the ranks, so to speak. Um, there's not much in the U.S., but we never admit it. I think it's much more admitted in Britain, and class is much more uh, defined. So in the educational system, there may be more of a uh, indoctrination, I guess, to make people more accepting of the class in which they, they're they're being brought up in. So the whole, I guess, his animosity towards the school, I didn't have that kind of animosity in school. I wasn't thinking that the, you know, my grade school and my junior high was there as some kind of state institution to make me be a good citizen or make me, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, pacify me in well, some way. I mean, the film's perspective is not in school. The film's, the first, like, two-thirds of the film is totally just a, the thoughts going through the mind of a catatonic pink sitting in a hotel room before well, he yeah. has his breakdown. So it's it's from his perspective as a 30-something-year-old looking back on his life. Well, no, I, I got that. I'm just talking about... Uh, so you don't have, even from this point of view, you don't have any feelings that of the infliction of conformity through the school system. You don't, you didn't get that feeling at all in school. Did you, I mean, school's I mean, shitty, but it's shitty, not really for institutional reasons. It didn't seem shitty for, uh, you know, because, uh, it was somehow endemic. It seemed well, shitty because, because I, I, I was going to school with a bunch of fucking bullies and assholes and, you know, products of rednecks and I, I that's what sucked about it it didn't have anything really to do with with you know um what the school is trying to do do to me it wasn't like a you know uh uh, uh some kind of brainwashing institution at least i didn't think well, so i mean i think in a, in a way it is a brainwashing institution out of necessity you can't have a bunch of animals running around the strength everybody the streets everybody needs to be socialized they need to figure out how to form themselves into some sort of uh, semblance of some sort of working part that allows them to exist in society. If you don't, if you don't mold yourself or have yourself molded into a, at least a reasonably shaped cog for the machine, you're going to end up being, you're going to end up being institutionalized or being homeless or being in the criminal justice system. It's just, a, it's a, it's a necessity of society for people to conform themselves to it. And school is an important part of that. Well, did you think that your school experience had an agenda? Do you think the school had agendas beyond just educating you? Well, when I was in school, no. But these days, it has to have an agenda. I mean, it's just part of it's just part of uh, socialization of the individual to understand the you know the rather arbitrary nature of the society right. we live in and how you uh, make yourself work in that system. There's, there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing uh, malevolent about it outside of just the general uncaring malevolence of of natural systems well let me ask you a question did you have such an experience as roger waters where you felt you needed to go ahead and write a song about school you know some 20 years after you left it because you felt it like had some kind of you know negative impact on your life that fucked you up to the point that uh it's one of those contributing factors to your alienation I don't know. Well, I think that I think maybe you had a different experience from me. In grade school, I had a lot of trouble conforming to social norms. And I was threatened repeatedly in the fourth and fifth grades with corporal punishment and lambasted. I can't tell you how many times I ended up in the principal's office because I was violent and I wouldn't uh, behave myself. 
It, and uh, the only way I really ended up doing it is just by being quiet. And I became very introverted after that period. But it allowed me to conform, more or less, with the balance of society. But there was no, ch- no other choice. I can't not conform with society. That's no answer. You have to conform no matter what the price you pay yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, okay. I'm I think trying a lot to of people, they conform very easily with society. Other you know, people have more troubles uh, making that pact with society. And I think that maybe that pact was, I think for most people, rather easy. And for some people, it's more of a struggle. And it certainly was a struggle for me. And it certainly shaped who I was, that struggle. I'm All not right. saying it was evil of them to ask me not to... Uh, stab people with pencils, and, uh, try to uh, kill people with rocks, yeah, right. and, and, and things like that. But it certainly was a, a more more of a struggle. All right. I mean, well, it's, it's funny in the sense it's funny in the sense that it's absurd, but it is needing to conform at, at its very core. All right. Well, I didn't have as much of an axe to grind, people. and I guess maybe I couldn't relate to that part of the album or the movie. Is uh, you know, the, I mean, certainly. Uh, Pink demonizes these people like the schoolmaster. He he demonizes the schoolmaster. You really see it uh, during the judgment scene near the end. He, uh, you see this demon version of the schoolmaster. You see the demon version of his wife, and you see a demonic version of his mother. And uh, I I mean, he has a serious axe to grind with these people. It's it's not necessarily a reasonable axe to grind. I mean, these schoolmasters and the wife and the mother are really exaggerations of his inability to conform to society. Yeah, careful with that axe, Eugene. Careful with that axe. No, sorry, man, it's a song. Eugene? It's a oh. song. <laughs> song, Pink Floyd from song. The, from the, <laughs> no, from Pink Floyd? It's a saucer full of secrets, yeah. So oh, is it? Well, I'm just saying, he had, he had trouble. It didn't, things didn't come easy to him. Well, and he's a rock star yeah. now, so that kind of goes with the territory. Yeah, he's know. an artist, man. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, he's, okay. Uh, He's uh, one of the uh, bleeding hearts, one of the artists. I mean, it's the final song of the movie, talking well, about the the plight of the bleeding heart and the plight of the artist. I think a lot of the movie just seems a lament of having that disposition. Well, is it a little incoherent? Uh, maybe is the message a little incoherent with the wall? And I, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. It's about, I mean, pink struggles. You can't deal with it. And if he wasn't wealthy and a rock star, he'd be living on the street or he'd be institutionalized. Yeah. He's just somebody who doesn't fit. He doesn't fit in. And he sort of he sort of built that wall so he could become comfortably numb. And what choice do you have? I mean, he had no choice. It's, in fact, he probably, it was probably a good idea to build that wall. And he probably should never have torn it down. Well, yeah, I'm trying, like, again, I'm trying to, uh, to relate the wall to kind of my my age as opposed to somebody younger where I think the wall is much more, uh, makes much more of an impact. And I believe it did for me. Uh, you know, I think it was, uh, hitting, hitting the notes better. No pun intended when I was in my early twenties, because a lot of those, you know, not fitting in, uh, problems with, you know, your relationship with women, uh, you're not really sorted out. Uh, all that stuff's pretty immediate. And, you know, when the wall, when you're listening to the wall at age 20, it's kind of ringing home a lot. But now that I'm 40, I'm trying to, I guess, when I watch this trial, pull a little bit more, you know, pull a different meaning out of the wall than when I was a younger man. And I do actually, I found lots of 
topics or lots of notes that the wall was hitting uh, when I'm a little bit older here that I, I found a lot more poignant, like especially um, I think it's actually not on the album, but it's in the movie and it's uh, what shall we do now? Do you remember that song? Uh, uh, let's see here. What shall we do now? What was, what was going on in this? Well, story? it's an animated sequence and uh, it's showing kind of these buildings popping up out of the countryside uh, I can read the lyrics. Oh, that really was very, that was very early, and it sort of sort of dealt with some issues of uh, consumerism, right? And what shall mm-hmm. we use to fill the empty spaces where waves of hunger roar? Shall we set out across the sea of faces in search of more and more applause? Shall we buy? It seems a new like guitar? it's somebody. Shall- it seems like somebody's searching for meaning in their life. Well, or maybe using no, stuff to fill that meaning. Well, I mean, that's kind of yeah. That's sort of the the is that the, your twenty something interpretation of it? No, I I think what I was starting to think about was, and we've talked about this before, about how our consumerist society destroys community. And uh, community is part of being, you know, I guess a functional community is having a level of communication with your neighbor that's, you know, builds bonds and builds trust uh, with the people that you live in and around and not necessarily people you share a common interest with, but, you know, people that you're kind of forced to deal with on a daily basis, even though you may not, um, you know, kind of, it's just sort of happenstance that you're living next to them or you're living in a community. And so, you You'd know, much rather kick them in the eye, as Morrissey says. Yeah, that's right. But uh, that part where he's just talking about, you know, um, I guess how I don't know. I mean, I could keep reading it, but uh, go for it. I, I uh, guess I, I guess I'm not quite understanding what you're talking about. Shall we buy a new guitar? Shall we drive a more powerful car? Shall we work straight through the night? Shall we get into fights? Uh, leave the lights on, drop bombs, uh, do tours of the east, contract diseases by bones, break up homes, send flowers by phone, um, and then uh, fill the attic with cash, bury treasure, stop, store up leisure, but never relax at all with our backs against the wall. So I don't know. I mean, it's just uh, it's um, really you don't get what I'm getting at. You don't see how I, I don't see it. I, don't, I guess I'm see not how modern me, man. modern living doesn't doesn't embrace community you don't see that at all oh the community aspect of it well we Um, talked about that with church remember with people who are attending church yeah and i was lamenting how church is the community aspect is more important than the uh the weird uh uh, mythos aspect of church um yeah and you know i i guess with modern consumers society which is what this little this little bit of song is about uh you know it's the 70s or early 80s version of it you know now it would be like buy ipads and iphones and um, yeah it's a shame i I don't remember the name of the great thinker this i think it was one of the person who uh was behind the peace corps being developed john f kennedy and uh, i'm not sure who it was but the idea was that we i remember the quote was we have to find the moral equivalent of war we need to have something that feeds all the needs of war without the terrible suffering of war. The idea that people should do exceptional things, hard things, dangerous things, but do it in a way that's not war. And I think in a way, modern society's problem is they need to find the moral equivalent of religion. Find something that builds communities, but isn't saddled with all the old, you know, racist, 
xenophobic well, yeah. uh, elements that are inherent to these old religions. Yeah, nationalism is a great community builder, unfortunately. So yeah, but the problem is that's then then you're you, you're taking down the path of war. I mean, I think nationalism has its place, and I guess maybe that's where some people have placed their religious needs. They've changed it and well, put all that need into nationalism. I'm not sure. Uh, if you want to talk they about the they, Nazis, they both seem yeah. The Nazis think, uh, were, they were, uh, they were they were also heavily uh, uh, Roman. I mean, they were also heavily well, uh, they, Christian church. Well, they, they well, not religious. really. They were more state worship. I mean, that was kind of their thing. They were, so. but they wrapped it in in the Christian religion. They didn't. Uh, they didn't it was more actually uh, Nordic I, I, iconography. I, icon off. I can't ever pronounce that word. Iconography, you know, because. Uh, uh, obsessed with Wagner and all that kind of shit, you know. Hitler built his. I mean, maybe, uh, whole but they certainly around. didn't. Uh, they didn't throw off the mantle of Christianity. Uh, well, anyway, shape or form. Um, I don't know. I was. Uh, if you go to a coffee shop now, you see. Uh, you know, everybody is being alone together, as I call it. You know, these sort of situations where uh, um, you even see like dinner tables. Shit, I do it. Where you sit there and you 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 scroll through your phone. Uh, you throw the phone out on the table when you sit down. It's sort of this being alone together thing, and uh, I don't know. It, it it's definitely uh, <laughs> iPhones are definitely a brick in the wall, in my opinion, because uh, they um, detract from the need for a personal connection or a personal relationship with somebody that uh, I think is a is unfortunately a function of consumerism and consumer culture. That um, it it isolates us and alienates us, and uh, you know, like I couldn't imagine Facebook bullying. I mean, that, to me, that just seems Facebook bullying. Oh yeah, what are you what are you talking about? Bullying people on Facebook. Oh, bullying! I thought you said bowling, like uh, uh, Facebook bowling. 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 Yeah, there's that too. <laughs> By the way, it's Big Lebowski's like 15th anniversary. And you get together in. Different bowling alleys, but you're playing in sort of a online league. That's right. You strap the. uh, That's not a bad idea. You strap the iPhone to your head, and uh, Mm -hmm. you know, so everybody can see your set. (laughs) Or maybe just use a bowling game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's actually a great idea. I like this. There you go. There you go. Work on that. Write your app. Anyway, but uh, what the fuck was that? So how? So how does? So you. So basically, you're lamenting consumerism. I guess how is that different from lamenting consumerism in your 20s versus being 40 years old? Well, how does how does that change your interpretation of this movie? Is that age difference? Uh, buried treasure, store up leisure. I mean, that's what I'm Wait, doing right now. It, do you think that's? Did you not feel? But that never relax at all. You never felt that way when you were 20 and being put through the grind of school. I wasn't a salary man at 20. Well, you didn't have money, right? Yeah, the problem. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when you don't have money, there's the whole. Uh, but just having money, you still this this says more than just consumerism. It's about staying busy with shit, and you certainly stayed busy with shit, did you not? You well, filled your life with things. You filled your life with education. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's bad. It's just you filled your life with something, right? You had to. You felt the need to fill it with something. I go to shrinks, give up meat, and rarely sleep. I mean, you know, that's. Or did know. you did you I always mean, get plenty of sleep when you were in school? No, I don't get plenty of sleep now. You know, uh, I have anxiety issues. You know that it, uh, generalized anxieties. Um, 
And welcome yeah, uh, to the club. You know, I'm a 21st century schizoid man, in uh, the words of King Crimson. I, I just 21st I'm not, century. I thought it was 21st century nuclear boy or something. What was it? Oh man, you do not know your classic progressive rock. We shouldn't even be talking about the wall. <laughs> Jesus I Christ! Don't. Look, I like I'm not. I don't. Fuck. I don't. I'm not. I'm not uh, deeply. Uh, you know, ste- steeped in this music. All right. Well, I won't bring but it up any. Mean I can't see the I, rush or yes references. references anymore. Yeah. Don't fucking rush. Make analogies to twenty one twelve. I'll just leave you in the dust. <laughs> I do not know my rush. <laughs> not, not whatsoever. I know some this guy's name's like Getty or something. Getty, right? uh, Hall of Fame uh, induct in in inductees this year. Uh, so, oh, yeah. great. Well, good. Put that in your pipe. I didn't know smoking. they let Canadians in to the uh, <laughs> yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Well, they, you know, it was either that or Brian Adams. And they, uh, yeah. Oh, God. Did they let him in? Jesus no. Christ. No. Or Alanis <laughs> Morissette. I can't, you know. Whoever. Oh, is she Canadian? No. Oh, I'm going to have to go burn her out. Haven't you stuff. been to Canada recently? That Every fifth song oh, I've has been to Canada be. Canada for years. Every fifth song is like by a Canadian artist or some rule for broadcasting. In Canada, oh, that they yeah. have to Countries play a disproportionate amount of Canadian artists, and sadly, they're all kind of terrible. You know, I don't know. There seems to be a lot of good artists out of Canada, especially comics for some reason. Nickelback, Nickelback, Nickelback. Dude. Oh yeah, Nickelback. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going on the Nickelback cruise. You coming? Uh, actually, there was a Canadian band I really liked uh, back in the early '90s or mid '90s. Bare Nickel Ladies, called the Tea Party. But now that there's that the whole Decemberists. No, they're from New Zealand. Oh. Jesus, man. What? You're old. Well, tell me about anyway. the tea party. Well, it was this uh, three-piece out of Canada that I really liked, and they were really into experimenting with, uh, I want to say world music, but not in a gimmicky kind of way. It was really good stuff, and they were called the tea party, but now, since we had a bunch of fucking dipshit Republican assholes adopting that as their you know, party within a party name. Now, I never even want to even listen to him now because it just is like, oh, he's like, what are you listening to? The Tea Party? He's like, fuck those guys, you know. Oh, man, the Tea Party is so out of my radar. I was was thinking about the actual Boston Tea Party. Why can't Americans just get back to scapegoating Native Americans? That's what Uh, we're good at. Let's get back to our roots. There's none left. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. All right. Well, okay, so maybe that's spent. As a topic, I was just trying to find a little bit of uh, well, look, common I mean, you're, ground you're, here. You're now. really focused on this difference between 20 and 40. I guess I don't feel that much different about my life between 20 and 40. I'm just a little sadder <laughs> and a little <laughs> okay. more dismayed about the world. All right. Generally, well, I still have the same angst I always had. What did you find relevant to your life in The Wall that is uh, maybe different than it would have been when you were a younger person? Uh, well, you know, maybe, you know, he's so obsessed about his parents and I guess maybe I've thought about that more. That's changed since my parents are dead. You know, you sort of in that hindsight, you think about them differently, sort of in a little bit of a rosy glow. Sure. And I just wonder how it would have been, uh, growing up without a father and sort of the negative effects of a coddling mother. He just seems really harsh to his mom. Well, I guess I, guess I don't quite understand. That and you know, I I don't know the whole psychology between uh, uh, between of uh, men raised by single mothers. It seems a lot more troubling than say, um, y- you know, boys or girls raised by a single father. Although that's 
seems to be rarely the case because that's usually not the way that it, that it rolls. But uh, I always get the impression that like single mothers want to raise their boy if they're taking an active uh, role in uh, raising their child. Some of them aren't just shitty parents. Uh, like any well i think it's just tough i mean it's tough raising kids. well it's tough but when you move half the half the if you basically cut down your workforce by half it gets really hard you gotta well, cut corners and you know lacking i guess uh, adult male role model and that seems to fuck up a lot of kids or at least skew uh, yeah especially when they're raised by two lesbian parents <sighs> all right Mark. <laughs> i'm just joking Damn. about that all right, you're going to start a little fascist speak, army speak, in speak, your backyard. Speaking about there. the tea party. <laughs> <laughs> or sp- <laughs> I think I think it's, I don't know if it's the masculine. I think it's just straight work hours. You just don't have enough hours. In and that's day. probably it's part a, of it. Yeah, It's a lot of work. I mean, at least some people I've talked to, it seems like more work than it's worth. Uh, but, uh, it's a lot, I, whatever it is, it's a lot of work no matter how, which way you cut it. Just to do this sort of uh, irreverent pop psych of the whole uh, single mother that the, the situation in the wall when when he's a little boy is that uh, there's obviously the the lack of having a father figure in your life but the overprotective he's always mother, looking yeah the overprotective mother bit maybe that's just um, raising she's raising a boy to be what she thinks would be an optimal spouse eventually and that's not really what a boy needs when they're being raised because it, obviously it fucks up his personal relationship with his wife and he becomes estranged with her and she you know needs something more emotionally and cheats on him with the whole uh, anti-nuke dude you know the activist guy well i don't think she's cheating on him they got separated he's back in britain he's touring wait, in the u.s wait really i thought they I, yeah serious i didn't get that i, I didn't, think I didn't they see that he up. found him i think that they had been become estranged and he was out of the country. And so she was, uh, you know, that makes sense because if you were actually cheating on your husband, you wouldn't get your lover to pick up the phone when it rang next to your bed, I guess. Yeah. They were separated and he he had lost a long time ago and he's still demon. I I guess there's just a dearth of information about these people that get demonized late in the movie when they're making their judgments upon pink in the animated scene. Uh, uh, I, there's just a dearth of information about the mother. I just you don't know that much about her other than she's a sort of a chubby single mother. Yeah, and there's the wife. very little information about the wife. And in fact, you could imagine that it would be very frustrating to be married to an introverted, emotionally distant person. I mean, of how course, how would you say married to somebody who's never opens themselves up to you? Has basically turned himself into a zombie. So he just to keep himself from going crazy. Uh, you would divorce him and, uh, you know, move so, on. So I, I guess I don't see that. I mean, it doesn't seem like it seems like the problem isn't these people other than the very nature of society as it requires conformity. I think the problem is is pink. You well, can't yeah, conform. you can't but, put up a reasonable face to get through life. But he, obviously an introspection while well, he's all zombied out there in his hotel room. You know, he's thinking about when he was a kid. And he's trying to find, I guess, some of the causality to his current situation. And so it, it always centers around his mother, like, you know, his school experience, um, mm-hmm. his lack of a father. And, yeah. uh, it's the really re- the father, the lack of the father that seems to really hurt him the greatest. Well, and that's kind of, I mean, I guess, you know, at a certain point you blame the, you blame 
the whole darn human situation for that because it's not really something that uh, it's, it's it's kind of indifferent to your situation. Your dad died in war. I mean, what do you, you tough know? Tough shit. Tough shit. Well, that, I mean, this movie's very anti-war. I think people always forget about all the costs in war. And it's not just the man who plays with his pays with his blood. It's his entire family. Did you ever have a relative in WW2? My grandparents missed it. They were too old, and my parents missed it because they were too young. My dad uh, was drafted for a while, but he just sat and ate a bunch of food in uh, Italy oh. for a couple of years, which is pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. And uh, though he hated it just because he didn't like the structure, the oh, sort of insane yeah. structure that the military has. It really rubbed him the wrong way. So he never he never had anything positive to say other than eating great Italian food for two years. Uh. Um, but the, my girlfriend's dad was in uh, in World War II. He was on a... Uh, a aircraft carrier in the Pacific Theater oh, almost okay. got killed a couple times. Yeah, my uh, my grandpappy, he was a crash boat driver in uh, the Pacific no, Theater right, as well, yeah. and he actually got shot while while pulling the. Yeah, he drove the crash boat that dumped the Marines off on the beach, and uh, mm. I guess as he was backing up, which was like the slow part, then he got hit by a Japanese machine gunner in the shoulder and uh, fucked him up pretty bad. But uh, he. Came back pretty fucked up, actually. It was yeah. I think that's the problem. I think, I mean, uh, Gene's dad came back sort of a little stoic, but sort of strong as a result. Sure, I think that's sort of the best case scenario. Yeah. That you just basically grow up and you leave all childish things behind. Well, Mike, you end up he ended up being a little emotionally distant. Yeah, my grand, uh, my grandfather. He, uh, well, in World War II, you went out to war for as long as the war was going to last. There was none of this like, hey, come home for a year and take six months off and go back to theater, you know, kind of like uh, yeah, Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, U.S. involvement really last in uh, World War II? F- four years in the Pacific yeah. Theater. And so he was out for four years, and, you know, he gets back in after the war, and uh, his wife's sitting on the, you know, his wife's there at the dock or whatever, and mm-hmm. uh, she's pregnant. And, oh shit! And, and and he gets off and he was like oh wow i'm gonna be a father again oh this is great news and his dad actually had to pull him aside and go hey uh hey 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 robert that's 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 not your kid that's you know you've been you've been away for four years so he oh, was geez. pretty fucked up <laughs> so he was, how, what happened to that kid um he, it was a, it was this uh it was a girl, and uh, I think that girl had actually gotten a hold of my dad at one time and asked about, quote-unquote, her father when my dad actually had to set her straight on that one. So there was some oh, so lie perpetuated. so he raised her as his own? No, he never did. Um, that well, Where'd she live? How'd she get raised? That woman went off. Uh, they divorced. She went off oh. and, uh, I guess, married somebody else. And mm. I, I don't know how it went. But uh, she was still under the impression that that was, like, my grandfather was her father for, I guess, until that phone call took place. But uh, Wow. Yeah. So uh, That cost the war right there. Sometimes those bills come in very late. Yeah. The greatest fucked up generation. So, anyway. <laughs> they, well, you know, the problem is, that's the problem with war, is that you get, it takes some people and puts them through the crucible and makes them exceptional human beings. Right. It takes the other nine, 90%, either kills them or destroys them mentally. Uh, and then there's that 1% that just eats good food in Italy and bitches about it. So, uh, Well, that was, that was not wartime. There was, there was no <laughs> shooting going on. There was just occupation you know, my, going on. My, gr- one, my uncle ended up in Italy 
uh, just fucking oh, yeah. off too. Yeah, I don't know. He was in the Navy, but uh, yeah. So that was that sounds like the dream spot. Oh, I know. There's nothing but photos of my dad hanging out in his swimsuit with all his army buddies, just sunning on the Mediterranean. Yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my uncle like the, worst, went, the most harrowing experience he had going to Paris and getting treated rudely by the French. <laughs> my uncle like uh, <laughs> him and his buddies like drove their Vita minivan up to the Alps and went skiing. I mean, you know, yeah. fucking hard time there in the military but uh, yeah it's amazing they had to draft people to fill those positions they yeah, they drafted amazing part well they drafted elvis presley you know yeah uh, not in wartime either they just drafted just so well the draft just kept going i guess they had so much so many positions they just couldn't fill yeah. it with volunteers all right so uh or you could end up like pink's dad and just dead on the beach you know, so. Uh, yeah, well, he was dead like in a foxhole. I think he was an officer or something. You know, Pink had a pretty nice house growing up. So, uh, you know, the thing is, I have a trouble feeling really bad for Pink. I right. understand life's tough, and he got thrown a, you know, he got thrown a bad uh, early, uh, you know, curveball with his right. dad being killed. But he grew up in an upper middle class family. I mean, that house was nice. Yeah, it was uh, nice. He didn't want for money. And then he had a successful rock and roll career. Yeah. I always I feel. Like, how, how bad am I supposed to feel for Pink? <laughs> well, I mean, the, I, I mean, that's an exceptional story. There's nothing like money to balance out uh, troubles. You know, you can always f- float yourself with money, and, and Pink does that for well, a long time. The until other he thing, okay. So you know, if you look at the sort of rock star, I guess uh, you know, it's like you're right. It's always fucking hard to feel sorry for like somebody like Axl Rose, who's all. Like a goddamn like Howard Hughes of rock and roll, you know, just just holds up in his giant Malibu mansion and can't get it together to even put an album together, you know, and uh, has all yeah, these kind I mean, of like just... fucked up issues. And part of that I blame is just having too much goddamn leisure time and too much money, you know. I mean, you just well, I mean, sure he may be fucked up, and I mean, he's given the opportunity to sort of debase himself into his fucked upness, but. You know, I drive by this guy coming home from work every goddamn day. He's sitting on like a Jersey barrier, begging for money by a by a on ramp, and he's got the crazy eyes and must up hair, and you know he's been in and out of jail. I mean, that's yeah. the sort of guy you should feel for. He couldn't uh, figure out how to mold himself into an, an acceptable citizen. And society. I'm pretty sure his childhood was way more rougher than Pink's. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, can, yeah, you yeah, get yeah. that, you know. So, um, it could be, you know. Like Roger Waters wrote in another on an uh, in the dark side of the moon, uh, you know, living lives of quiet desperation is the English way. So maybe we're just seeing some. It's quiet desperation that we're seeing in Pink. It's not any sort of uh, major trauma, but it's just uh, it's it's a desperation that isn't easily verbalized or communicated to those around you, uh, and. Like us, you could it's say, the, you know, it's the it's the quiet desperation of every man except the lucky few. It's like, well, what the fuck's your problem? You're a millionaire rock star. Why don't you get the fuck together? You know, I mean, it, yeah. And that's no, a reasonable comment to make. You can't have a lot of sympathy for him. There just isn't any room to have any sympathy for him. Uh, he seems kind of from the outside to be just a spoiled, uh, self-indulgent asshole. And, uh, you know, I mean. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'd go far as far to say that he's a troubled being. And his station in life allows him to be coddled to a certain extent, not by his own choice. Well, it allow- he just is happy being homeless at some point. Well, it allows him to be more self-indulgent with his... Uh, well, he doesn't get slapped around or get kicked out onto the street or be put into the criminal justice system. Right. 
Yeah. That would happen so, to other people. He has so a he manager can, that throws money around. You see him throwing money around. Played by Bob Hoskins. A, yeah, I thought Bob Hoskins was really great <laughs> in that. He played a pretty good rock manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the whole. Uh, let's start a. Let's start a. You know, fascist. Uh, legion of uh, skinheads uh, that whole yeah so you know that part still confuses me it's it's some of the most interesting iconography in the in the in the movie i mean i love that double hammer uh red black and and gun metal you know scheme you know what's interesting uh i you know i've been listening to a few of our podcasts lately and i say interesting way too much i need to find another word fascinating i don't know uh, it's sort of cute (laughs) uh when I was down visiting uh, our friend Will in L.A., and uh, his wife's German, and uh, they have like their home studio because they do concept art for, for film and things like that. And so I was just kind of checking out all her art and like their studio and stuff, and she had this little flag uh, up on her desk, and it was a um, – I think it was a red flag with a white circle, and there was kind of this black double cross in it. It, it looked like uh, – yeah, it looked like a cross, like a, like with, a double, like a double dagger, like you see. Yeah, a, I, a reference to a, <laughs> a, a footnote. And she could tell I was looking at it because it's obvious. You know, there's this this sort of uh, echo of a fascist flag sitting on her desk, and and she was like, "Well, um, my father was in a sh- worked for a shipping." company out of hamburg and when the nazis took over there was a lot of co-opting of nazi symbology to uh get kind of get business more or less yeah i bet there was a lot of government uh, contracts floating around yeah so whenever you see sort of the red black and white uh you know with some kind of a crossed symbol whether it's uh it doesn't have to be a swastika it just resonates, you know. That imagery of of, of fascism is is almost canned. I mean, it's almost uh, it's it's like instantaneous, and it sends like a weird chill down I mean, your spine. And that's exactly that's exactly what he was going through, going for. He was just going for like a British national socialism. I guess there was a skinhead group, a neo Nazi group. Uh, I think they were here in the U.S. that co opted the hammer. They're called like the, the hammer. Double hammer. They're called the hammer skins or something like that. And oh, uh, really? Oh shit! And uh, Roger Waters just freaked out and was just pissed off and depressed. And I'm like, well, they're fucking neo-Nazi racist dipshits. <laughs> they're gonna, you know, what do you expect? Uh, yeah, they're people that legitimately hate fags. Yeah, they don't get hate irony. Coons and hate <laughs> pot smokers and hate people with spots. Right. And they're they're not going to get the irony of that, you know. They're uh, kind of barbarians looking for anything, so they're going to grab what they can. So if you know if they grab is your it, is symbol, is it really irony? That, I mean, uh, what exactly is going through Pink's mind here? This is all fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's. I think he's fantasizing. I mean, he's he's reaching a breaking point. He's got his wall up, and it's really not work. It's not doing the trick any longer. So he's trying to figure out how he can reinforce that wall, and the idea that create this persona the persona where you leave your own persona back at the hotel yeah and and, and you and go you you take a persona and it's basically is a proxy for you to do all the things that you need to do well and it manifests and fantasizing about what what shape this proxy could take yeah and it's the i mean you know the the, the nazis or uh, hate or fascism or it's not really fascism or fear 
fear. I mean, a lot of stuff comes out of fear and feelings of inadequacy and anger. Well, and this is the shape they take. That's how they often you see it in history. They manifest themselves in these sort of totalitarian regimes. And it's the height of I would say it's the height of cynicism where you just go ahead and write most of humanity off at that point. And you write them off in sort of a ideological way or a way with that, uh, I guess, gets you comfortable with with hatred. You know, it's just like, yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of two steps to this. You You have to write them off and then you actually have to fill those writs. You actually have to go yeah, that's take right. them off. That's right. You have it's to, a two-step process. You can just hate, and society doesn't mind so much as you just keep to yourself with your hatred. Yeah. But when you start... Or you see it in some like radio personalities, hate. But they right. don't go out there and bash in windows, of, and they don't go into uh, eateries and, and beat the shit out of the black customers. Yeah, or, you know, fire up the ovens in the final solution. I think that was a line. They you know, get I, a stiffy talking about it, but they don't actually do it. And I think those are two... Yeah. Very different. Uh, I mean, there's there are a succession of two actions. I think maybe that's why you don't see it more often. Yeah. So I guess it kind of maybe so he's that's... fantasizing about it so you can forgive him for that. He's trying. He's draw. He's reaching. He's, you know, he's grasping at anything, just something that will help him prop himself up. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of the thing about, I guess, neo-Nazis or you're always going to find somebody who has those shitty ideas. And you can get well, them in groups. Maybe somebody who's yeah. hurt enough and weak enough, yeah, to be to be grasping at those ideas. That I got, I'm out of ideas, so I'm just going to take these. I got to take something. And that's kind of what the the modern neo Nazi uh, movement preys upon. They prey upon these uh, disenfranchised uh, loner people that are kind of, they have a bone to pick with society, but they don't have a bone necessarily with any particular group. But They have a bone to pick, but they don't have a good quality bone to use. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't have the tools to try to make some difference. Right. And so if you listen to, like you said, a more organized, uh, more uh, fervent version of a radio host personality, uh, you'll, you know... Act on those kind of that level of misanthropy or hatred or disenfranchisement and, uh, you know, start an oi band and I guess march through streets of Idaho and piss everybody off and maybe beat up a black guy every now and then or something. You know, I mean, you'll 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 find that that outlet for all that. So, yeah, it's almost uh, I wouldn't call it a. typical outcome but it, it seems definitely to make sense at least in the wall that oh yeah okay you go into this sort of fascist hatred at this level you've written everybody off so much that this is what you're left with you know well i mean you're really left with two choices in life do something that is worthwhile or kill yourself yeah right and uh, uh so i want to i want to just talk about the very ending of the movie I mean, this judgment scene. So we see Pink break down after his flight of fancy with fascism. And right. then he's judged by a judge who's an anus. Yeah, that's great. Enough. Yeah. And uh, it suggests that he's going to take a crap on him when he makes a little <laughs> toilet out of the wall. It's really pretty gross. You sort of yeah. see his mouth yeah. and it's like a sphincter. Yeah, I know. So his, he's judged guilty by his uh, schoolmaster and his wife and his mother. Well, he puts and himself judgment, on trial. He puts himself on I mean, trial. Yeah. But his judgment is to tear down the wall. Which isn't really a resolution. I mean, it's... No, it, I don't know. 
know. Maybe it is. I mean, he's the walls the problem. Maybe he just needs to open himself up. Uh, but how does? I mean, it's hard to do that when you you know. It's like uh, you have to de-indoctrinate yourself from the whole ideology that you've built up to, I guess, crutch on. You know. But well, the, the the way I thought about it when I when I was watching the movie is that we all need a wall. Just from a strictly, it's just a necessity to be able to interact with people. You can't take everything. You can't wear your heart on your sleeve. You can't take every criticism personally. You can't act out whenever you feel feel that flush of anger or embarrassment or resentment come into your brain. We all need a wall, but what we need is we need a good wall. And the problem with Pink is he has a bad wall. So it needs to be torn down and rebuilt uh, properly. Well, I, I don't think it's arguing for a wall at all. I think it's just uh, um, it's basically you know the answer to fix your problems with alienation. Uh, you just it's hard to do it. I mean, it, it the answers are fairly obvious, and I think what you get at the end of the movie is is him accepting that easy answer, which is just to uh, make personal connections make sincere personal connections again with people uh that aren't uh dragging any sort of baggage or uh preconceived notions along with you or prejudgments you have about people uh you know or archetypes uh like women personal relationships with women that kind of thing yeah you can't hate his mother and you can't hate his ex-wife right you you, you, you have can't to go around life hating people it just destroys you it builds bad walls and my uh you know i guess to bring up my uncle again i know he doesn't listen to the podcast but uh he had a big problem with my grandmother because it wasn't actually his mother it was uh all my uncles are half brothers to my dad and so he went through a lot of group therapy and uh, he definitely got it in his head that the source of all his problems was that my grandmother treated him badly or didn't treat him equally in the house when he was growing up and everything. And uh, he still can't get over that. And so uh, he went to a therapist and they basically said, it's like, you know, those people are dead. That that woman's gone and there's nothing you can do to uh, keep on if you keep blaming her it's not going to fix anything so you need to get your act together you need to um, stop being a victim you need to sort of you know mobilize and he couldn't do it he freaked out and uh, walked out and never went back and you know that's the kind of shit that and I'm saying that because it's easy for me to say it because I don't have any (laughs) shit like that in my past haunting me. But uh, I think the, but, but the answer I think is as obvious to me as it is to them that uh, you just, you know, forgive and forget as, as uh, rhetorical as that comment is. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's always bugged me. It's true. I guess that's maybe one thing I figured out that you can't hold grudges you can't hold hatred. And it's a shame because it lets all the assholes off the hook. But it does. the problem with assholes is not only do th- are they just assholes, but they never pay the price for it. Because they can't pay the price because the, the price you have to pay to get back at an asshole is your own self. And it's a, yeah. And it's a terrible price. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, and, and that's, that's, I think, probably the hardest thing to accept, that there's no karma in the world there is no karma it's only what you make your of yourself <laughs> that um assholes are going to get away with it i mean you can 
you know, do what I do on occasion. And, uh, uh, it's like, well, I'm going to be an asshole, too, if people let me get away with it, you know. Um, the best thing you could do is try to stop their assholery in the moment. But once the moment's passed, it's over. There's no price to be paid. Yeah. And a lot of it may be so subtle, it's hard to call anybody out on it while it's happening, you know. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a that's a good message of the film and maybe one we can uh, It's always bugged me. It's, on, it's, but... it's, I think it's tough, yeah, for people to realize it. So... Uh, here we go back All to right. Ebert, which we don't actually have today. So, uh, oh, what are we doing? We're then? going to be going a different direction. So Ebert didn't review this film, at least not until later in his career, and as such, I like to avoid these uh, hindsight reviews. I think they tend to maybe take a little too much thought and not focus on the film. At the moment, it exists in time. Uh, to that end, I found a review on the New York Times, afraid, unfortunately not from my, one of my favorites, uh, Vincent Canby, from another journalist named uh, Janet Moslin, who I'm not familiar with. Anyway, she reviewed this uh, in August of 1982 when it came out. Uh, it's a somewhat negative review. Let me uh, grab a few points off of it. He says that um, the movie is... Um, has a assorted psychedelic frou frou to uh, flesh out a rock. Is that, isn't that frou 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 or frou frou? I've always know. heard it pronounced frou frou. <laughs> okay, I'm right. not sure where it comes from, but I don't uh, he says she says about the uh, our main character Pink. He is weary and alienated and self destructive, and he says uh, he daydreams about various things that we've talked about. But uh, she mentions the flowers engaged in oh, angry sexual yeah. congress. Which is some pretty nice animation. Looks like it's all hand drawn by the same artist. It was it took quite a time. Yeah, I get. I, I read the or I read. I watched the little retro bit on the uh, retro perspective on the uh, DVD, and it was oh, it took ridiculous amount of time to do that animation because each one was uh, I want to say what was it? Crayon was the medium or something, but it took oh. Uh, I think each drawing took a day to do, and there was like twenty drawings per second or something crazy like that. So it took forever to mm. do that that scene, but uh, yeah, nice scene. She says uh, there's lots and lots of wall shots. You can be sure. <laughs> yeah, there is. She talks about the director a little bit. He says it's. She says it's an odd film for uh, uh, Parker, who was the director, and uh, he says it. Uh, she says it has a little to do with his other films, such as Midnight Express, Fame. And shoot the moon. I don't think I've seen any of those. Do you remember what Midnight uh, Express I've seen, is about? Yeah, is that the one about a, the Turkey, Turkish prison? It is. Yes, I've seen it. It's good. Yeah, I think I've seen that. With yeah, yeah. That's, that's, oh, that's Billy. Um, but he says it's actually right up uh, Parker's alley, and he is very capable of startling imagery. Uh, he says uh, there are elements of self pity and sensationalism in self pity. There is a lot of self pity says, in this. Sorry, yeah, and he says these aren't out of place in uh, illustrating poor Pink's uh, plights. And he says he yeah, uh, brings plenty of energy to the product and uh, makes it an overpowering experience. However, not every viewer may care to be overpowered in quite this way. He says, uh, she says, the wall is a shameless, all-out assault on the senses. And uh, she says something I didn't notice. It equates combat soldiers rushing to war as fans charging into a concert. I always wonder what all those kids were running around doing. I guess the idea is they're charging into that <laughs> yeah, concert. they're rushing into the mosh pit, man. I thought there was just some ideas of uh, 
you know, youths at the at the late seventies being unhappy with society and rioting. Is yeah. I agree. Yeah. But I see what I see what he was going for there. Um, and uh, one image is when uh, Parker puts an entire school children's choir on a conveyor belt leading to a meat grinder yeah that was pretty overpowering let's be what, honest that was I, a little that was a little too much on the old nose i got a meat grinder story after you finish okay yeah that was maybe that was a bit over the top uh she says pink isn't uh really a great character but he is the only center the film has and the audience isn't given much reason to share his visions i guess i don't quite see that I thought there were some neat echoes in my own life in his visions. Yeah, we talked about kind of relating to Pink a little bit, I think. I can see how some people maybe couldn't relate if they never felt alienated from society. Well, like his bitch is... He I has mean, a if you bitch, never had those his, feelings... His bitches hmm? aren't... The, he has a bitch, but the the bitch isn't that big of a bitch, I think, is what we've come to the the kind of the consensus on. Well, it's the bitch. It's, it's not so much that it isn't a reasonable bitch. It's just the bitch everybody has. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's his life so, is really no different than others, a thousands, millions like him. I guess, but it doesn't mean you can't bitch about him. No, no. it just mean it does. But it means it's a bit trite, no matter how horrible it is. It's trite, trite horribleness. Um, and see, anyways, uh, Janet could, uh, concludes her uh, negative review with this paragraph. Unlike Tommy, the wall doesn't have a jokey, self deflating side that might have been helpful. Yeah, it's actually, Siri, that. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. Uh, that was no, Rod- please. That was Roger Waters' biggest regret. Regret uh, in the commentary was that uh, he <laughs> he really wanted humor in the film, and there was no way to do it. And he wasn't satisfied with the result because it had no levity. And so it it it's he was definitely aware of it. Wait, what what is fucking funny about this subject matter? Why would I don't you know. want to put levity? In I, don't it? No well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you just do so it. people yeah. find it more acceptable. That the, the oppressiveness can be lifted off their shoulders. They can't take 90 minutes of oppressiveness and fuck them. <laughs> can't Mr. take two Parker and a half hours of Schindler's List, but anyway. so Fuck Schindler's List. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Parker occasionally reprises some of his handsomest images as if these were coming attractions for an equally attention-getting but less overbearing film. Alas, this isn't true. So anyways. Uh, yeah. I'm glad I read it. I like. I don't like uh, too much hindsight in my reviews, so it's a little negative, and I understand. It's all right. I don't think it's going to resonate with all people. I don't think. But I thought it resonated with me. I don't think it has much for chicks. I don't think this movie. Well, has you don't much... think chicks? Chicks don't have the same alienation problems that men have. I don't think to this level of self indulgence. I, I maybe I don't know. I, it, it it. Okay, I don't know. But, it's tough uh, to know never being a chick. I don't know if many chicks were Pink Floyd fans. I never really met one, but uh, that mm. could be my thing. Anyway, my meat grinder story. There was an industrial one up in Alaska that they used to grind up chum carcass after they harvested the caviar from them. And it was out on the end of a dock, and uh, it literally it's it's it, it was like as big as the meat grinder that you see in Pink Floyd's The Wall. The hopper wasn't as big, but me and uh-huh. this Kenyan guy – We'd go out there and grind chum carcass for fucking 12, 15 hours a day. In the and that's just rain. a way to dispose of it without having any cost for disposal? Uh, you just went out to the bay and then critters ate everything. So it okay. wasn't, uh, you know, it was uh, it was it disposed was a cheap of in nature. way to get rid of your refuse. And uh, we were out there for fucking ever. And uh, Kenyon, this Kenyan guy, James, was hilarious. And so uh, he had like a, he was a bodybuilder, but he had this kind of high, 
like pitched voice. It was it was it was really funny. And uh, tour boats would come in from the cruise ships to tour like a fish processing factory. Why? Yeah, fucking, I don't know, man. It made no sense to me. It's like something to do, you know? And uh, so you're working like in the, it's like your hell and their vacation is visiting you, you know, in your hell. And so they take a tour of the cannery and they come by us and we're winging chum into this, it's gross, this hopper. And, what uh, is chum exactly? It's a low grade of salmon. Uh, it's typically. Oh, it, was, it was salmon that they could not turn into food product because it was so crummy. Uh, yeah, and so, but the eggs are, are really good, and they're what, uh, they make a kuro sushi out of, so it's pretty high grade. Oh, okay. And so they would just harvest it for that, and the, the, the flesh was almost pale, clear, because it used all the fats in it, so they were just worthless. And, uh, this tour group came by, and, like, we're winging chum from these totes into this giant meat grinder, and they're disgusted. (laughs) You know, there's, like, four or five of them there, you know middle america just horrified and one of them like builds up the courage and asks james is like where does all that go because all the meat's coming out and it's going into like this trough gutter in the ground and you don't see it ending up in the in the water yeah and then the water takes it away there's like some kind of a you know hose there that just kind of takes it underneath the cement under a building or something and he looks at her like she's the dumbest fucking lady on the planet <laughs> and and he and he goes in his high pitched voice. It's like in cans, woman. It goes in cans, and then <laughs> she just turns pale and they leave. And I was like, oh, that did it. She'll never eat fish again. You know, beautiful. So, <laughs> Not canned. Canned meat's a dangerous gambit. Yeah. So uh, another thing I wanted to mention before we close out is uh, my bitch about classic rock. I do not want to be the classic rock guy. I spent. Way too much money seeing Roger Waters at Key Arena. Uh, he was going to do the whole Dark Side of the Moon album. And so you're like, oh, all right, you know, and not thinking. <laughs> you go to Key Arena and you're up in the nosebleeds. And Roger Waters is a bassist. Uh, he was a bassist in Pink Floyd. He wasn't a guitarist. You know, he wasn't, uh, and he, he isn't really a primary vocalist for, for Pink Floyd. It was mostly Gilmore uh, with him kind of complimenting uh i don't know if you ever sang lead in in any of these songs and so what i was watching was like a fucking cover band of pink floyd for 70 dollars a whack and i was like fuck this i'm never coming back to one of these like cobbled together classic rock acts i'm done not doing it anymore so i've sworn it off since you know i've just been burnt too many times i saw jethro toll when ian anderson's voice was cutting out because he was so fucking old you know, I even saw Pink Floyd as Pink Floyd, but they were missing Roger Waters. And I was too young to care. I was like 88 or something. But now I'd be like, why the fuck would I do that? I, it's, the band's not in its prime. There's no reason to see them, you know? If there was just some way to listen to the band in its prime, you wouldn't have to go to the Well, you know, and you and I have seen bands in their prime, and I never want to go see them again. Like, we, we saw Radiohead when they were in their prime. Uh, we saw... I'm still waiting to see Nirvana. <laughs> I saw Nirvana in their prime, you know, and and uh, I saw we saw the White Sp- Stripes in their prime. Remember that show? Oh yeah, yeah, that was pretty good. And I'm like, I'm done. I I'll see a band when it's in its prime. I'm not going back ten, twenty years later for a reunion show. I'm just fucking not doing it. Sick the problem it. to see them in their prime, you have to listen to new music. And that's a problem. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, and I, I'm terrible at that. So that means you have to. That means you have to short sort through all the crap to find the good stuff early. Yeah. So tough. I may secretly pop in Soundgarden Super Unknown into my car stereo, but I'm not taking it any further. I'm not buying their new album. I'm not going to their show. I'm done. So anyway. All right. So fine. Hang, sounds good with me. Hanging up, Roger. Please, for the sake of us all. Anyway. All right. <laughs> uh, what do we got next week? Uh, next week, we're going to go uh, visit the original theatrical cut of Apocalypse Now. I mean, I was thinking about it a little bit after, uh, uh, what movie did we do that had all the, uh, oh, uh, Gary, Wrath of God, and uh, Gary, the Wrath of God. <laughs> and, Gary. Uh, I thought we should, probably should go see that film. It influences, and I do want to hit these great directors, great films in the course of our, our review, so it's, it's up. Let's let's hit Coppola. Is that yeah. who it is? Yeah, Coppola. And... And uh, and just see one of his films. I think he's at least do our sixty second podcast. A sixty second podcast. That's going to be hard. Yeah, we finally got around to Coppola at sixty seven. <laughs> oh, so, oh, sixty second. I thought you said sixty seconds. So we're going to do a sixty second podcast. Oh no, Coppola. no. I mean, we could try that if you want, but uh, talk about it in no, a minute. No. We got we got around to him after sixty two goes. That's true. Yeah. All right. Until next week. Next time, fuckers!